Let's turn in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As the outline handout says, we will be in verses 11 through 14 this morning. Don't get too distracted by this, but I have slightly tweaked the, uh, the title from what I announced earlier in the week. Originally, I called this the sermon, Inheritance in Christ. As I said, don't get too distracted. We'll explain it as we get into it. But I'm, I'm now titling the sermon, Inherited in Christ. Inherited in Christ. As we dive back into Ephesians chapter 1, uh, it's only right that we read again the earlier part of one long Greek sentence of, of praise, blessing to God that Paul is opening with. Uh, I mentioned before, it's, it's more like a, just a tightly connected paragraph, the way it would have been used back then. But as, as we have heard various places in the Old Testament, or even in, in Luke chapter 1 with Zechariah, uh, offering a, an exalted, um, almost poem, in some cases of praise to God, people would begin by saying, blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel. And then they would say what this God has done for which we must bless him. Now, Paul says, as he addresses the saints who are in Ephesus, who are believers in Christ Jesus, he has just said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3 he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing of the Spirit or spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, that is, in the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We've spent two sermons getting through that, that much, but Paul isn't done yet in his first utterance of praise to God. That he has blessed us in Christ with every blessing the Holy Spirit could bestow in the heavenly places. So today we look at the rest of the text which tells us that uh, not only are many wonderful things inherited by us in Christ, but we are inherited by God in Christ. Both things are present here. So let's read verses 11 through 14. Verse 11, in him, again, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. I'll come back to this, but the, uh, the, the Legacy Standard Bible says we also have been made an inheritance. Or the Net Bible says we too have been claimed as God's own possession. We'll come back to that. 
But this is true in Christ for us, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. More literally, this will be important later, he's the guarantee of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. In order to be sure that we're handling God's word rightly this morning and understanding it correctly, um, you're going to have to hang with me a good bit. I will do my best from my end to, uh, to make this flow smoothly and to um, see the details but also not get stuck in the weeds and draw it all together um, for the purpose which Paul wrote it, for praise to God, for exalting our souls and blessing to God. The big idea, and this is, this is uh, very easy to see, the big idea is that in Christ, we who are God's prized possession have a secure inheritance. In Christ, we who are God's prized possession have a secure inheritance. Now, if you can hear that and yawn, I feel sorry for you. In Christ, we who are God's own prized possession, we have a secure inheritance. Well, let's open that up. First of all, verses 11 through 12. In Christ, the Father has laid claim to us by his almighty will. First thing Paul says to to develop that, first part of verse 11, we are God's. We are God's specially chosen and cherished possession. We are God's specially chosen and cherished possession. And yes, Paul is overlapping a bit with some things he's already said about how we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be blameless in holiness before God and God in love before we were born, before the world was born. (laughs) Um, God in love predestined us to be his own sons and heirs. His children and heirs. He predestined us to the adoption of sons as sons through Jesus Christ. So some of that overlaps here. But Paul's saying it a little different way and for a good purpose. Again, the ESV here says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. It's not that that's a bad translation. It's just that it's a difficult thing to translate and there's, uh, there's debate about it. The NIV actually says, in him we were also chosen. But it would be chosen in the sense of um, a prized inheritance being chosen. A prized possession being chosen. Again, the Legacy Standard Bible, which is just an update of the the, uh, 95 NASB. uh, It says, we also have been made an inheritance. So we're we're the ones who are are not um, receiving, but... We are made this. We are made an inheritance. Again, as I said, the the New English translation, the Net Bible, is sometimes helpful. It says, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. They're adding in the word God's to make it clear what's being said. 
we too have been claimed as God's own possession. As I said, the, the issue here is not, it's not like there's different texts that say different things or anything like that. Uh, the original grammar here could go more than one way, and especially since there's a rare word used here, that's the problem. But long story short, this rare word, uh, one word which we translate with several words here, we have obtained an inheritance. Um, this rare word is built on a shorter, more common word for something obtained by lot, or something allotted, or something inherited. Remember, for instance, how Israel's tribes received their inheritance in Canaan by lot. They would cast lots and divide up the territories. Who gets what as their inheritance, right? That concept. In the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word for an allotment or inheritance also describes something very um, very relevant for our text today. It describes Israel as the Lord's inheritance. That is, the Lord, God, inherits Israel as his special people. They are his heritage. Deuteronomy 9.29 is a good example. Moses says to God, as he's pleading with God, for they are your people and your heritage, or your inheritance, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. You took them out of Egypt, Lord, to inherit them, to make them your special possession forever. So while some translators in Ephesians 1.11, um, they take, some see it as referring to what we inherit as God's heirs, and that does show up later, our inheritance shows up later, uh, I tend to agree with the many who translate it differently as that which we are to God. We are his heritage. We're his inheritance, his prized possession, as will be said again in a different way in verse 14. Remember what Paul said in earlier verses in this chapter. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The idea is we are predestined to or for God the Father for his very own. For his benefit, if you want to put it that way. God loves and prizes us as his special people whom he will forever enjoy. No, God needs no one. He doesn't need us. He doesn't have a big hole in his heart that we have to fill up. And yet, wonder of wonders, he delights to make us his special possession. His. We belong to him like no one else does. Does it sound strange to say that God inherits something or someone? Well, it shouldn't if if we've read our Old Testaments. A couple more examples. Psalm 78, verses 70 through 71. It says, he, God, chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes he brought him, to shepherd Jacob his people, and then it restates it, uh, Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance, God's inheritance. Or Psalm 82, verse 8, Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you, God, shall inherit all the nations. Well, God's redeemed people are his specially chosen and cherished possession, his inheritance. That leads us to the second part of verse 11. 
where we find that this high privilege of ours was predestined by God's unstoppable will. It was predestined by God's unstoppable will. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And it might not quite come across with the full power in English. He works all things. The idea there is of effecting something, producing something. Effectively bringing about the effect you want. um, The result you want. He makes all things work out uh, completely according to the counsel of his will. He actually brings his designs into his historical effect, as S.M. Baugh says. Um, Clinton Arnold here says, Paul ever so strongly emphasizes that God is not responding to events as they unfold with various countermeasures. He's not just really creative, watching things as they happen. But, Arnold says, that he, has a, that he has a carefully designed plan that he is revealing and fulfilling, especially as it relates to the choosing and redeeming of his people. End of quote. That hits the nail on the head. Nothing can stop God's purposes because it's God who providentially brings absolutely everything to pass that happens in his creation. That's what the text says here. And it's not an unusual text that way. The Bible says that all sorts of places and assumes that everywhere. But here's the important part, the most important part. Um, That being true, all God brings to pass is part of the decisions he made before the world began. His eternal counsels and decrees, the counsel of his will. And again, when we talk about him uh, having eternal counsels, that doesn't mean that the that literally the eternal, unchangeable, all-knowing God had to deliberate and make decisions like we creatures would. But the point is, God's plan for everything was settled before creation based on nothing but God's own holy will. So if that's true, nothing can stop it. There's nothing that's going to come in from the outside of God's plan. Nothing, even at the molecular level, if you want to put it that way, (laughs) that's going to throw it off. Because it's all part of this plan. We will belong to God forever. He will love us forever. Nothing is going to change that. Verse 12, then. This high privilege is ours that God's glory might be praised. Paul says, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now pause there as you look at that phrase. We who were the first to hope in Christ. Um, Many think here. I don't, but many think here that Paul is talking about Jewish Christians as those who had the gospel before the Gentiles, but others disagree. Um, Actually, I think it's more natural for Paul to still be using what we call the first person plural, translated with those words, we, us, and our, through this text. He's still talking about we and us and ours, referring to all believers in Christ, like he's been doing throughout this long sentence. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, and so on. Um, and the Greek doesn't exactly say, we who were the first to hope in Christ. It actually says something like, again, it's a different language, you can't just totally carry it over. It says something like, um, we who have before hoped, or already hoped, in Christ. One commentator, a very respected one, says um, the idea would be we believers who already have hope because of the work of God in Christ. Or other commentators uh, also point out this rare word translated hoped before. It might actually just be an intensified word for hope. So it might be simply saying we who have firmly placed our hope in Christ so that we who have Staked everything on Christ may be to the praise of his glory. But anyway, the big picture is clear where this is going, right? It's about God's glory. That's why God does anything he does. This high privilege is ours that God's glory might be praised. Here's the bottom line. We who have placed our certainty and hope for the future on Christ... All true believers, we are God's own possession. We have this high privilege because he predestined us to it. And his purpose in all of this is that as men and angels behold our redemption, as they see it in living color, they will see God's glory on display and they will erupt with praise. And that's as it should be. We are what we are by God's grace, so that his glory shall be praised. The glorious depths of God's love, and his grace, and his wisdom, and his holiness, and all his attributes, they'll be seen now in redemption in a way that wouldn't be otherwise possible. How is God go, going to show grace to someone who's unworthy if there are no sinners to redeem. God deserves to be admired. He deserves for his creatures to be struck with fear and awe and wonder, and, but at the same time filled with amazed joy, heartrending love, jubilant praise to their creator. And this is how God's plan to do it. We have the privilege, by the way, of not only being the cause of the praise, praise being directed to our Redeemer, not to us. We don't just have the privilege of being the cause or the occasion of the praise. We're also participants in that praise, aren't we? The praise is to come from our lips in response to our redemption. Yes, it's a glorious thing. 
for the angels who never fell, who never sinned. To watch this unfold and praise God's glory and grace as as they see it in the redemption of sinners. That's glorious. As countless angels, as the book of the Revelation pictures it, erupt in praises and wave upon wave of praise. But it's another thing entirely to be the one snatched from the fire. To be the one cleansed from an incurable corruption. To be that one who once loathed God. Now eternally devoted to praising his glory. And as the book of the Revelation puts it, no one can learn that song but the redeemed. You know, this emphasis on a, on a people that's created and redeemed for the Lord's glory and praise, that's not new either. It was dimly talked about even in the Old Testament prophets. One such place is Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. And this is speaking in the context of the Redeemer who would come, the servant of the Lord, to make a new covenant Israel. But he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Then in verses 20 and 21 of the same chapter, just a little bit further down, these people God calls my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Well, big idea again, in Christ, we who are God's prized possession have a secure inheritance. We're getting to the inheritance part, too. But in Christ, we who are God's prized possession have a secure inheritance. In Christ, the Father has laid claim to us by his almighty will. We're securely his. And now the next two verses complete the picture. So the second big point of the text, verses 13 through 14, in Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has been given us as our seal and pledge. Obviously, there's a lot there to unpack, but that's, that's the big second point. In Christ, the Spirit has been given us as our seal and pledge. First of all, verse 13, when we believe the gospel... That's important because many teachings have arisen through church history that this isn't quite true. But this text says, when we believed the gospel, God sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. If you believe the gospel, you have the Holy Spirit fully at your disposal. 
when we believe the gospel, uh, verse 13, in him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He says, you also. So it's, it's sort of a dramatic narrowing of focus. Paul, Paul wants to make this very personal for the people at Ephesus, right? He's been talking about all believers, and then he says, and look, you know what I'm talking about. You, personally. You also, along with all the rest of us believers, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Notice he calls what they heard, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That reminds us of some basic but important things. Uh, The truth that will transform sinners into saints is the gospel of the Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the only word, the only message of truth, which is God's power for salvation, for bringing deliverance to the sinner. The word of truth that does this is the gospel. You flip that coin, look at the other side. And we also need to be reminded that the gospel is not, the gospel itself is not our personal testimony or experience or opinion. The gospel is the word of truth. It is objective truth about God's act of salvation in history. As Paul expressed it in 1 Corinthians 15, what is the gospel? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose the third day according to the scriptures. That's historical objective truth. To which God himself bears solemn witness. If someone rejects the gospel, they are rejecting the truth in exchange for a lie. They're not just rejecting your personal interpretation of your life. They're rejecting the word of truth. They're making God a liar, 1 John says, 1 John 5. Because the gospel is is his solemn word testifying to his son as the savior of the world. Now, praise God, we all once naturally rejected the gospel, but God changed our hearts, so we no longer reject it. But I'm just talking about the nature of the gospel as the word of truth. And he says, when you heard that, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then you believed in him. You weren't just believing in some facts. You placed your trust in a person, in Jesus Christ, who is the, who is the feature attraction of the gospel, obviously. You believed in him. Hearing the truth about Christ's person and work, about the Savior and his salvation, that created belief, trust, faith in this Christ. Reminds me of Romans 10, starting in verse 8, where Paul says, But what does it say, the scripture? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. 
4, and he quotes the prophet Joel, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then, Paul says, will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom, or you could translate that perhaps, whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You want to see your loved ones believe, trust in Jesus. You know what's the very best thing for that and the normal way God does that? You sharing the word of truth, the gospel with them in detail. But more specifically, often God delights to use the public preaching of the gospel. The gospel, as Paul said, is the power of God for salvation. Don't just hope and even pray that someone will somehow believe in Jesus when the truth isn't being communicated to them. Be specific. If you can, expose them to faithful preaching of the gospel. God delights to use that to change hearts. But for we who have believed in Christ, we know that. We should. It happened to us. That's what Paul's point is here. When, you, when that happened, he says, when you heard and believed, what happened to you? Lots of things happened to you. But what is he saying happened to you here? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Perhaps we don't always... Sometimes we, we talk about it, but perhaps we don't always emphasize enough the Holy Spirit as the result of saving faith. And for that matter, the Spirit's been at work all along to create that saving faith. We know that too. But as far as the Spirit coming as the seal upon the believer now, that is one of the greatest things that happens as a result of saving faith. But let's think about that word sealed. We don't use that word quite the same way as often as, as they would have back then. What's a seal? What, what, what would they use seals for back then? Not talking about Navy seals or the seals you see at the aquarium, all right? It's, it's an imprint. It's a mark, right? Some of you were going to sleep on me, I think. So It's, it's, it's a mark that identifies something. Um, as Clinton Arnold says, all of a person's significant possessions in the ancient world were marked with the impression of the seal. There were other, other places where I could have listed all the kinds of possessions people would mark with a seal. Even slaves and livestock were marked by the owner. So living things, animals or people, could be marked by a seal. He also mentions, interestingly, that under the Old Covenant, if you read the the Greek translation of the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the, the priest, the high priest, wore a seal on his forehead, actually. 
on his turban, engraved with the phrase, Holy to the Lord. Holy, or holiness to the Lord, was on what was what is called in Scripture a seal on the priest's forehead. That'll sound familiar a little later. Paul Gardner goes into detail about a seal on a servant or a slave in that day. Slavery has a very negative connotation to us today because we have certain kinds of slavery in mind, usually. Um, It didn't have all that automatic negativity back in this day um, as far as what we're not always talking about a slave working in the salt mines. Slaves might be treated very well, might eventually be set free by their masters. Uh, I don't want to go into all that right now. Anyway, don't don't get the, the really harsh idea of slavery when I say the word slave. Um, many slaves in the ancient world had very high positions, very honored positions, actually. At any rate, he says the idea of being marked with a seal is taken from the practice of slavery. He thinks it's talking specifically about slaves being marked. Slaves were branded with a mark that was burned onto their flesh or even with a piece cut out of their ear. If a slave was sold, he or she would have the mark of the new master put on them. Being sealed in him with the Holy Spirit again reminds us of a new lordship. This is a sign of slavery to a new lord. When Christ the Lord takes possession of a person he has redeemed, he moves immediately to guarantee his slaves new status. He does this with his slave seal, the Holy Spirit. Now it is this spirit who is at work in us and not any other. And he goes on, one more paragraph. But this slave mark is also a sign of the Lord's protection. In Roman days, slaves would be protected by their master. He was responsible for their welfare. In Scripture, the work of the Spirit is undoubtedly about the welfare and protection of Christ's people. Thus, the guarantee, which Paul says next, the guarantee also means that God's people will be protected and kept for that final day to ensure they are still around to receive the inheritance that is theirs. End of quote. Hang with me for a second. There's a a point to what I'm about to take you through. Ezekiel 9, we see God in visions he's given to the prophet Ezekiel. God is about to destroy the people of Jerusalem for violating his covenant. And he'll start, he, he sends out his angelic executioners to start at the temple and work their way out through the city, slaying everyone in their path. It's symbolic of what God let the Babylonians do to his people in Jerusalem. But before God has his executioners go out and slay everyone, he says, Ezekiel 9, verse 4, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. Why do I bring that up? Well, Revelation 7 takes that image. God's judgment about to fall on the world, but certain people protected by a mark on their forehead. But 
But Revelation 7 doesn't call it a mark. It calls it a seal. Revelation 7, verse 2. Again, this is visionary. This, this is intentionally a picture being painted in visions to express a spiritual truth. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then it lists tribe by tribe. Interesting list. It leaves out the tribe of Dan. Um, but anyway, it symbolically, there's 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, totaling 144,000. Then in verse 9, um, John had just heard that there's this number of 144,000 sealed, but he didn't see him yet. Then verse 9, he, he looks, and what does he see? He sees a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A few verses down, they are identified as those coming out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And Revelation 14.1 brings the 144,000 up again. It calls them those who had the Lamb's name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. So this time the seal is the name of God on their foreheads. Hmm, who could these people represent? Well, I already kind of told you, but Jesus had told us earlier in Revelation 2 who these people are. Revelation 3.12 The one who conquers, or the one who overcomes by faith, is the idea. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And then Revelation 22, when we see God's people all brought safely to glory in the new heavens and new earth, in the new Jerusalem, it says, no longer will there be anything accursed, or no longer will there be any curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in that city, and his servants will worship him or serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. See how this all comes together. God has marked us to show that we belong to him and to keep us safe as his treasured possession. But it's not just what is given us as a seal, it's who is given us. Whom? Well, God gives us a person as a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God gives us nothing less than God himself. What a seal. But this was the glorious thing that was promised. As it says, he's the promised Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God was promised to be given to all in the new covenant. The covenant of grace God would make through his Messiah. Spirit of God would be given to all the offspring of Abraham who shared his faith, both Jews and Gentiles, all new covenant Israel. 
Ezekiel 36, 25, I will, spring, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. By the way, that that just mentions one of the primary ways the Spirit protects us. He protects us spiritually by helping us to walk in God's ways. Helping us to persevere, cling to Christ, loving His Word, until we are safe in glory. Isaiah 44, verses 1-5, through 5, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Oh, but their descendants won't come from where they might expect. Next verse says, They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. On the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes the prophet Joel, the prophecy that in the last days God would pour out his spirit on all flesh and all classes of people. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, God says. And then Peter preaches Jesus as the Messiah, whom they crucified, the people listening to him in Jerusalem. And when they say, brothers, what shall we do in response to the fact that we've crucified our Messiah? Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, Galatians 3, what's the result of Christ redeeming us at the cross? Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. I'll skip the next one, but Galatians 4 has more to say about this Holy Spirit as the spirit of God's son sent into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And it shows that we're no longer just a slave, we're a son. And if a son, an heir through God. But the Spirit isn't just a seal. A seal marking ownership. A seal that uh, says this one will be kept safe. He's also a guarantee, a pledge. Verse, beginning of verse 14, next subpoint here. The Spirit is God's pledge of our full inheritance and redemption. You see, we belong to God, but because of that, we have a great inheritance that we haven't reached yet. The Spirit is God's 
the best thing he could give us as a guarantee that we will get that full inheritance. It's not, the, it's not, the story isn't over yet. It's only just begun for us. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance? Until, ESV says, until we acquire possession of it. Literally, as the New King James says, the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. It's that word for redemption again. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. Or the NIV says, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Clinton Arnold says, the message that Paul is communicating here is that God so values his people that he has put down a deposit and will complete the transaction in the future. This is a word very common from that day about what we might call a down payment. God has already given us something so valuable that it guarantees the rest to follow. But what's this inheritance? Our inheritance is also brought into the picture here. What do we inherit? Well, there's too much, too many places I could go in the Bible about this. But what do we inherit? Basically, everything Christ inherits, we inherit. Because we're in Christ. You shouldn't think of it so much as, well, Christ has his inheritance over here, and we have our inheritance over here, which is great. No. Christ has already inherited something, but we are one with him. We are in Christ. It's like if you get married. When I got married, I um, loved... I loved my new bride. And I said, look, I love you so much, I'm going to let you live in my house. And I give you this little separate bank account with a few hundred dollars in it. Ain't I generous? No, I didn't do that. Let me tell you, we have the same bank accounts. Everything that's mine is hers. My name, my last name is hers. Everything that's Christ's is ours in our union with Christ. And everything he inherits, we inherit. That's the teaching of Scripture. Romans eight sixteen and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Matthew 25, verse 34, on that great last day of judgment when the Son of Man comes in his glory and is seated on his glorious throne, it says, then the king will say to those on his right, to his sheep, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, 
who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And yes, again, this inheritance is simply what Christ has inherited, both for himself and for us. Revelation 2, Jesus says to the churches, verse 26, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. I receive this authority from the Father, I give it all to you. On the other side of this life. Well, Revelation 3.21, Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Revelation 21, when we see a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and we see the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, And we hear that now the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God, is forever with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Then all the old things that we know under the curse have passed away. Then it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He says, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he says then, in Revelation 21, 6, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, this inheritance. And I will be his God and he will be my son. And so... As Paul says here, and also places like 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22, there he says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, that word for a deposit. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. And I do think this is referring to the fact, again, that we are God's dearly bought possession and dearly prized possession. The same word for possession here is used by Peter, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter's taking that language from what God said to Old Covenant Israel at Sinai. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God often says this about his covenant people. Deuteronomy 7, 6, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So the redemption of the purchased possession, what is that? It's the day of redemption consummated, the day when God takes his people to himself. He redeems us in that sense as the church triumphant and glorified. It's the day when the Lord Jesus comes to save those who eagerly wait for him, as Hebrews says. When 
we see that which Jesus has told us are uh, when we see signs that Jesus told us about Luke twenty one that his coming is near. It says, "Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near." Romans eight calls this day the redemption of our bodies. And it says that not only we, but all of creation is groaning and eagerly waiting for this day when we are redeemed and we fully experience our adoption as sons in that sense. To wrap up the very end of our text, Paul says again, all this is, quote, to the praise of his glory. The Spirit secures us not only for our good, but thereby for God's glory. We have the Holy Spirit within us, giving and sustaining our new life in Christ, working holiness in us, convicting us of sin, opening our eyes to the truth of God and the Scripture, giving us a love for God and His people, so many things we could list, equipping us, gifting us for the work of the ministry that we all have as saints. The Spirit does everything for us in our Christian life. That is, we are utterly dependent on Him for everything. Yes, we work hard, but that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. He does all this as our seal, marking us that we are God's, and as our guarantee. If we have God, the Holy Spirit, within us, we're going to get everything. And that's all. Yes, it's all for our good. And it's not that God doesn't care about us. Absolutely. We've been saying this is all because God loves us in Christ. But it's for an even greater thing than our good. Our good, praise God, is for His glory. Which is why Paul says in Ephesians 3, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Some concluding applications, just three of them, and each very brief. Number one, since you belong to God, be secure in his love. If you're God's treasured possession, be secure in his love. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. What rational reason do we have for being insecure in this life? What's going to happen to me? Am I not really that important to anyone? Do I have no one to protect me, no one to to stand up for what's truly good for me. All the insecurities you can think of 
are properly answered by the fact that we belong to God. There's no reason to despair. There's no reason to doubt that we are loved, that we are secure, that we're protected, that all things work together for our good. We belong to God. And second, since you belong to God, be pleasing in his eyes. Not to make sure that he's not going to unleash his wrath upon you as a righteous judge. But since you belong to God, why wouldn't you want to be pleasing in his eyes? In such a bond with the living God who treasures you. Why would you grieve him? Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Or Titus chapter 2, Paul gives many instructions for how older men and older women and younger women and young men are to be different than the world around them if they are Christians. They are to be sober-minded and faithful in all things, sound in faith and love and steadfastness, self-controlled. Paul goes to great lengths describing what the Christian life should practically look like in the home and in the workplace how we should be models of good works in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation all around us. But why? Titus 2.11 For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, there it is again, who are zealous for good works. God's purpose for those who are his treasured possession is that they might multiply his glory in their lives, be zealous for good works, be utterly different from their fellow sinners. Since you belong to God, be pleasing in his eyes. And third, lastly, since you inherit all things, which is a mouthful, since you inherit all things, be content in that destiny. Christians should not be grasping discontent people. Be content with what you have in Christ. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierce themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, 
gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Don't mess around with these lesser things on earth and be driven by a lust, a greed for it. Lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Really sink your teeth into that. Get a good grip on that inheritance. And that should be enough. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word. And though we've gone to great length to expound it, uh, we certainly haven't done it justice. But Lord, please use your word, honor it, by making it change, first of all, our hearts and our mindsets and our affections, and then changing our actions. Help us to be secure in you, to be devoted to you, never want to grieve you, and help us to be content. That's what's only fitting with all that you've given us in Christ. So we ask this in his name. Amen.